A remote 18th century smuggler's inn has found fame the world over for its ghosts. What is the cause of the footsteps heard throughout the building late at night when there's no one there? What about the mysterious hooded figure seen in multiple areas of the inn? Then there's the highwayman in the tricorn hat who is seen by terrified guests in their room walking through a wardrobe in the dead of night. Tonight, join me as we spend some time at the Jamaica Inn. Welcome to episode 27 of How Haunted, a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the most haunted places on planet Earth. I'm Rob Kirkup, author, paranormal historian and ghost hunter from the northeast of England. Allow me to be your guide as we dare to investigate in depth the often dark and troubled history of each location and of course, the chilling tales of the ghosts that reside within. This week we find ourselves in Cornwall and ask just how haunted is the Jamaica Inn? Listener discretion is advised, as each episode of How Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, bloody murder, and ghosts. So many ghosts. Listen on if you dare. In around 1760, a man called John Broad, who may have been a sea captain, was granted 20 acres of moorland on Bodmin Moor in Cornwall to build himself a dwelling house. This was given with just a handshake by a James Scanwin of Northamptonshire. John Broad called this Bold Venture, which would become what we know today as the Hamlet of Bolventer. It was situated to overlook Brown Willy, the highest point on Bodmin Moor. In around 1778, the toll roads were constructed in the area and the dwelling house became a coaching inn, called the Jamaica Inn. Some sources explain the name as being linked to the smugglers who may have frequented the Jamaica Inn and brought rum into England from Jamaica and hid it there. There is no historical proof that smugglers were here, 
However, they almost certainly were, and if John Broad had links to the sea, it would make sense. However, this smuggling link isn't actually the reason for the name. It was named for the Trelawney family, who were one of the most influential families in the area at the time. The seat of the Trelawney family was 25 miles away in Plint, a grand manor dating from Norman times. And the Jamaica Inn connection was that two of the family members served as governors of Jamaica during the 18th century. Edward Trelawney served as the governor of Jamaica from April 1738 to the September of 1752. He was a British colonial administrator and a military officer. He was appointed to the role during the First Maroon War, which had started a decade earlier in 1728. The Jamaican Maroons were runaway slaves who had originally been imported from Africa to Jamaica to work on the island's sugarcane plantations, and they were embroiled in a conflict with the British colonial government on the island. Edward Trelawney knew that the colonial authorities could not win this battle, so offered the Maroons a peace treaty, as well as allocating them their freedom and giving them land, bringing the war to an end. In 1747, he wrote the controversial pamphlet An Essay Concerning Slavery, which argued that slavery in Jamaica should be abolished. The second Trelawney to serve as Governor of Jamaica was Sir William Trelawney, 6th Baronet who held the position from 1767 until his death in December 1772. The manor at Plint is now a Grade 2 listed building and since the 1960s it has been used as holiday accommodation and entertainment and is now called the Trelawn Manor Holiday Park. At the time that John Broad was converting his dwelling house into a coach and inn, it was extended with a coach house, stables and attack room. Attack room is a room that is utilised to store equipment for saddling up a horse. These form the L-shaped part of the building that exists today. At the same time a blacksmith's cottage was built, which remains today along with the forge, and it was operating as a working farm. In the mid-18th century, when the Jamaica Inn had opened for business, smuggling was a hugely lucrative business. What had started as a small-scale operation bringing in small volumes of goods, such as silks, tobacco, tea, spirits and wine, with the aim of avoiding pay and duty, exploded into an enormous industry, with it not being unusual for 3,000 gallons of spirits to be brought in during one trip overseas. In 1784, the Prime Minister, William Pitt the Younger, suggested that of the £13 million in weight of tea being consumed in Britain, less than half of that, roughly 5.5 million, had been brought in legally. It was due to the government that smuggling had become both a huge problem for them and hugely profitable for the smugglers, as constantly increasing taxation was being imposed by a succession of governments looking to fund costly wars in America and Europe. Smugglers caught could be executed as a deterrent to others, but so few were caught that it didn't make any difference, and many of the judges were paid off in smuggled goods, so handed out lenient punishments. It's said that there was such an abundance of smuggled gin in Britain that people were using it to clean their windows. The 18th century is, unsurprisingly, known as the golden age of smuggling. The majority of contraband goods were being brought into the southern counties, and around half of the brandy and roughly a quarter of the tea being smuggled illegally into the UK was coming in along the Cornish and Devon coastline. 
The Jamaica Inn's remote location made it the ideal stopping place on the way to Devon and beyond, as well as the perfect location for smuggled goods to be hidden. Ever since this time, the Jamaica Inn has been considered a smuggler's inn, and even today it has its very own museum of smuggling. This museum contains all manner of smuggled artefacts, and you are able to watch an educational film entitled The History of the Jamaica Inn, that tells many of the tales of myth and legend that now surround the near 300 year inn. Another aspect of the smuggling trade in Cornwall was wrecking. Goods that were washed ashore from a wrecked ship were fought over by excited locals who raced down to the beach at the news that a ship had been wrecked, often as the unfortunate crew cried out for help while drowning in the rough sea, they'd be ignored as their ship was picked clean for anything of worth, with pickaxes and hatchets even being used to dismember the vessel itself. A much debated legend is that there were teams of wreckers who would intentionally light beacons on the shore in areas with rocky sections just offshore. When the ship got into trouble and would eventually become wrecked, the wreckers would then loot it. Rather fittingly, the Jamaica Inn was the setting for a novel about a smuggling ring. English novelist Daphne de Maurier's 1936 novel, Jamaica Inn, is about a woman who was staying at the Jamaica Inn with her auntie and uncle as her mother has passed away. She quickly finds out that the inn is an unsavoury place and her uncle is involved with smugglers. De Maurier was inspired by the location having stayed at the inn in 1930. During her stay, the young woman of 23 went out horse riding on the moors with a friend one November afternoon. A thick fog set in and they became lost. They took shelter in a barn but with night falling and no sign of the fog clearing, they trusted their horses to lead them back to the safety of the inn and thankfully that's exactly what they did. She returned to the Jamaica Inn in 1931 and had tea with the local vicar, a Charles Triplett, at the inn. He told her stories of smugglers and wreckers. These tales captured her imagination and inspired her novel. The novel was a huge success and even appeared on the big screen when Alfred Hitchcock directed a movie adaptation of the same name in 1939. De Maurier would live in Cornwall for most of her life, and the inn today has a display of items that were owned by her, including her writing desk and typewriter. There was a little-known rumour that the inn may have been used as a secret meeting place during World War II. There were a lot of Home Guard soldiers based at Bolventer, and Jim Edwards, a historian local to the area, wrote that senior British Army officer General Montgomery came to the Jamaica Inn for a meeting with General Patton of the US Army. There was also an unsubstantiated claim by a former landlord that General Patton stayed at the inn in the summer of 1944. The Jamaica Inn has had Grade 2 listed status since the 23rd of November 1988 and is now a popular tourist attraction, pub and hotel. It has 36 rooms, a large restaurant, a gift shop, a farm store, and the aforementioned Museum of Smuggling. The Smuggler's Bar retains much of its original 18th century feel, and before you enter you're warned, through these portals pass smugglers, wreckers, villains and murderers, but rest easy, twas many years ago. The Jamaica Inn today is synonymous with the ghosts said to be found throughout the old building, and it has earned a fearsome reputation for potentially being one of the most haunted places in the UK. There have been paranormal occurrences reported at the Jamaica Inn for over a hundred years, and its infamy 
has increased enormously in recent years, especially after it gained exposure on popular UK paranormal TV show Most Haunted in 2004. It was an incredible episode, which those involved with the show have described as one of the spookiest they ever made. Most Haunted's historian Richard Felix said at the conclusion of the investigation, I'm really very, very impressed with the ghostly goings-on here at the Jamaica Inn, and it's got more ghosts than even I realised. Investigator Phil Wyman added that it's a legendary place and what he'd highly recommend doing investigations at. Paranormal activity is reported on almost a daily basis and includes all manner of disembodied sounds, including footsteps throughout the building, often in areas that are completely empty at the time, the sound of children playing and babies crying. Then of course, there's the ghosts that are seen, dark shadowy figures moving swiftly along the corridors. Interestingly, despite the building originally dating from around 1760 and the extension from 1778, the ghosts aren't only found in this more historic part of the Jamaica Inn. There is an extension to the rear of the building which was constructed in the 1980s and a new block containing rooms from 2017. And these appear to be just as active as the older areas. The Ghost Club the oldest paranormal club in the world which was founded in 1862 visited twice, first in 1999 then again in 2001. The investigation included the legendary ghost hunter and author Peter Underwood, and the ghost club witnessed a shadowy figure. The best known story of the Jamaica Inn is most likely that of the stranger who in the 19th century was at the bar enjoying a tankard of ale. In some tellings of the story he is called Jack. He went outside, appearing to be going to meet someone, leaving half of his drink on the bar for when he returned. Unfortunately, he would never return, and he was never seen alive again. The next morning, a corpse was found on Bodmin Moor, and was quickly identified as being the man who'd been happily drinking at the inn the previous evening. How he met his end, and who killed him, is a mystery that remains to this day. However, his restless spirit appears to remain at the Jamaica Inn, and footsteps have been heard walking along the passageway to where the bar was at the time. It's believed by many to be the dead man returning to finish his drink. In 1911, the first sighting was reported of a man dressed in strange clothing sitting on the wall outside the inn, looking out onto the A30 road which runs through the area. He was just sitting staring, when someone tried to speak to him, he simply disappeared. This sighting made it into the press that same year, and ever since, there have been reportings of the ghostly stranger seen sitting on that wall. The description of this mysterious silent phantom matches the murder drinker almost exactly. If it is him, nobody's sure why he is repeatedly drawn to his spot on the wall. Another of the Jamaica Inn's famous legends is that of the sounds of horse and carts travelling across the courtyard. The sound of the metal wheels is that of a cart moving over gravel. However, the courtyard today is cobbled and has been since the 1950s when it was changed from gravel. Nothing is ever seen, just that all too familiar sound of the horse and cart. In the main bar, the Smuggler's Bar, there have been instances where glasses have fallen from the bar, smashing all over the floor, for no explicable reason. In recent times, in the cellar behind the bar, a hooded figure has been seen, 
and a woman wearing Victorian dress has been seen in the bar area. In the original bar, now called Mary's Bar, which is behind the Smuggler's Bar, females have reported having their hair pulled. In the 1950s, a full spectral apparition was seen here, a tall man wearing a green cape. He was seen when the Jamaica Inn was closed and left the bar and headed towards the generator room, which is now the hotel reception. The four most famous haunted rooms are the bedrooms number 3, 4, 5 and 6, which are all situated in the oldest part of the inn. Room 3 has a real connection to younger spirits, with a young boy of around 10 who may be called Tommy being seen by frightened visitors who wake up only to see him stood at the foot of the four-poster bed, watching them. Children's handprints appear on the mirror, much to the annoyance of the cleaners who've only just cleaned them. This is blamed on Tommy and other children, such as Elizabeth, a young Victorian-era spirit. A baby's cry has been heard, as well as a woman sat upon the bed cradling a baby. The baby's crying has been heard by others in nearby rooms. When it's been mentioned to staff, they've been quick to point out that there isn't a baby staying in room 3. Something that the woman with the baby, as well as the weeping of the woman that is heard, could be Mary Downing. Mary had an illegitimate son with a former landlord and married man, Thomas Dunn, and took legal action against him in 1834 to force him to acknowledge their child. In room 3, scratching is sometimes heard from within the walls. In room 4, whispered or muffled voices are heard having a conversation. This has been described by some as being in a foreign dialect, but it's believed that it's actually the old Cornish language. Strange odours appear suddenly, then disappear just as quickly. Heavy footsteps are heard and felt moving around the room, and most famously a man, described as a highwayman, stood by the bed near the window, watching visitors as they sleep. He wears a green coat and a tricorn hat, and some think he could be a smuggler called Jack Travellis, although there is absolutely no proven connection between Travellis and the Jamaica Inn. A hooded figure has also been seen in the room. Room 5 is arguably the best known and most notorious room, and anyone staying there who has no idea of what they may have let themselves in for will soon find out when they open the wardrobe, as it's full of toys and letters left for the ghost of a little girl called Hannah. There's no historical records to prove that she ever existed, but it's said by some that she stayed at the inn with her mother, then the following day they boarded a ship at Falmouth, and they both died at sea. The toys left for Hannah move around the room, all on their own. Visitors have been terrified while lying in bed, feeling heavy footsteps circle in the bed, and some have felt unseen hands caressing their legs. On one occasion a soldier found it all too much and opted to spend the night sleeping in his car, rather than face whatever was with him in room 5. One visitor accused staff of planting wet, child-sized footprints on the floor of the room. Of course they hadn't. On a paranormal investigation ran by Haunted Britain Investigates in 2018, a figure stood outside room 5 was seen. Much like the highwayman seen in room 4, this phantom was dressed in a tricorn hat and long overcoat. Whether it's the same ghost isn't known, but this isn't the first time that this spectre has been seen as he's been reported inside the room, where he slowly walks through the wardrobe. 
Room 6 is home to the shadowy figure of a large man who stands in the bathroom doorway. We know that the bathrooms in room 5 and 6 used to be joined and form a separate bedroom, so perhaps he, whoever he is, has some connection to this room that no longer exists. An elderly couple staying in room 6 were frightened when they were lying in bed and all of the furniture in the room started moving around all on its own. Footsteps are reported throughout the entire building and are often blamed on the children, such as Tommy and Elizabeth, playing and running. However, there are also heavier, slower footsteps heard, certainly not those of a light-footed child, and on one occasion, that's exactly what was heard on the upper floor of this older part of the building, where rooms 3, 4, 5 and 6 are situated. In the bar below was a group of ghost hunters, over 20 of them, and they all clearly heard someone walking slowly above them, but everybody in the inn was in the bar. The lights in the corridors are motion activated to ensure guests don't have to walk around in the dark at any point, so those leading the investigation went to see if they could find out who was responsible for the sound. However, the lights in the corridor were out, meaning there'd be nobody there. The extension added in the 1980s includes a gift shop, toilets and a restaurant. And all of these areas are unsurprisingly active. The corridor in this newer area is also the haunt of a young blonde girl in Victorian clothes. This is said to be Elizabeth. A woman has been seen in the gift shop. She's described as being in her 30s and 40s and is wearing Victorian clothes with her hair tied in a bun. Speaking of hair, female visitors and members of staff with ponytails have felt somebody tug hard on them. When they turn around to see who is to blame, there's nobody there. When staff arrive in the morning, they find that toys and books that were neatly on display are lying scattered all over the floor of the gift shop. The toilets are located next to the gift shop and people can't even find peace while using these facilities. In the men's toilets, the voices of men in a heated argument is heard when there is nobody in there. In the ladies' toilets, the door swings open all on its own. In the restaurant, the hooded figure that has also been seen in the cellar of the smugglers bar has been seen. Also, the giggling of children has been heard coming from the kitchen when it's been closed and empty. Room 23, which is the new wing which opened in 2017, had paranormal reports almost immediately, with one couple complaining that somebody had been into their room and messed it up while they'd been having their evening meal, moving some of their belongings around. They were assured that nobody had been in their room. Later that night, the woman staying in the room awoke at around 2am to see a woman stood in the room wearing clothes that appeared to be from Victorian era. The woman was half asleep and tried to work out why housekeeping was in their room at such an unusual hour. This mystery woman walked into the bathroom and she never came out. It was only now that the woman realised she'd seen a ghost. There have been knocks heard on the door by those in room 23. However, CCTV covers the corridor outside and there's nobody there when it happens. A stable boy named David is said to roam the Smugglers Museum, which is situated in what was once the stable block. A huge phantom dog has also been seen here. It is the size of a Labrador, but has the fur of a wolfhound. This is the type of dog that would have been used by those in shooting parties on the moors during the late Victorian times, when hunting parties would have stayed at the inn. During paranormal investigations at the inn, it's common for investigators to ask for tapping in response to questions, and the sheer volume of tapping responses received at the Jamaica Inn is astounding. 
This leads to the question, are the spirits, or at least some of the spirits of the long dead that reside here, intelligent and able to communicate with us, as opposed to those who are fortunate or unfortunate enough, depending on your point of view, to see those spirits that appear to be a snapshot in time forever being replayed. Unlike many hotels across the UK that are believed to be haunted, the Jamaica Inn doesn't shy away from its reputation as being one of the scariest places anyone could choose to spend a night. Rather, it leans right into it, even offering its very own paranormal investigations for anyone aged 18 or over, with the in-house team at the inn being led by Karen Besant, who's been part of the team since February 2015. Next episode, I'll be talking with Karen, as I welcome her to be a poltergeist, and we chat in-depth about the haunted Jamaica Inn. It's impossible to talk about the Jamaica Inn situated high up on Bodmin Moor without mentioning the Beast of Bodmin Moor. Bodmin Moor is a spooky place, and it's as vast as it is ancient. It's 208 square kilometres, or a little over 51,000 acres in size. And it dates back to the Carboniferous period, which was between 299 to 359 million years ago. The moorland here is steeped in myth and legend, and none is more famous than that of the beast. In 1983, the first reports to the police were made of a large black cat, three to five feet long, with yellow eyes and two prominent fangs prowling the moors. This wasn't a domestic house cat out exploring the moors. This was something far bigger, and these sightings were just the beginning. Sightings increased, Livestock was mysteriously slain, and photographs were captured, which appear to show something the size of a large dog. Some believed it could be a panther. Experts in the field of big cats were quick to point out that a breeding population of jaguars or panthers or similar would be almost impossible, as the climate was unsuitable, and there wouldn't be enough food for these beasts to survive on Bodmin Moor. Despite this, the reports kept on coming thick and fast with many believing that one or more exotic big cats from the zoo or an illegal private collection could have either escaped or intentionally been set free, and this was the cause of these reports, which had the area gripped in fear, with parents worried that if they let their children play too close to the moors, they would not return, having become a meal for the beast or beasts. An interesting claim at the time surrounds animal trainer Mary Chipperfield, who in the 1970s was a British circus entertainer who specialised in a chimpanzee act. She was also known to provide numerous animals for various BBC productions and the 1967 movie Doctor Doolittle. By 1978, she owned Plymouth Zoo, but it was struggling financially and was eventually forced to close. Five pumas at the zoo were to be transferred to Dartmoor Wildlife Park, which is now Dartmoor Zoo. However, when the cage arrived, it contained only two pumas, Three were missing, which included a breeding pair. Mary claimed that they must have escaped. However, she would later confess that the three were very dear to her, and she had released them onto Bodmin Moor rather than give them away. For many, this answered the mystery of the beast of Bodmin Moor. Three pumas were on the loose. But in 2016, two years after Mary's death, her widower, Roger Corley, said that she never released the pumas. However, the fact does remain that three pumas went missing and must be somewhere. In 1995, following the persistent sightings, the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food launched an official investigation into the sightings. 
This was led by investigator Simon Baker and Charles Wilson. On the 19th of July 1995, the study concluded that no verifiable evidence for the presence of a big cat was found, but at the same time, it didn't rule out the possibility. Less than a week after this government report, on the 24th of July 1995, 14-year-old Barney Lanyon Jones was walking by the River Foy when he came across a large skull, which looked like it may have came from a cat. It measured 4 inches long, which is 10 centimetres, by 7 inches wide, which is 18 centimetres. The lower jaw was missing, but the top jaw had large, sharp canine teeth. The national press latched onto this following the report only a few days earlier from the experts, which said that the beast didn't exist. The Natural History Museum in London studied the skull to establish what it was, and it turned out that it was a genuine skull from a male leopard. However, the skull was from a leopard that had been killed overseas and turned into a leopard skin rug, which was then imported into the UK. With this news, the media lost interest in the story. This was until 1998 when a video was captured which showed a big black cat around four feet long. It was described by the curator of Newquay Zoo and wildcat expert as the best evidence yet that big cats do indeed roam Bodmin Moor. The sightings continued to this very day and it was revealed in 2011 that since the turn of the century to that point there have been 205 sightings made to the police in the Devon and Cornwall area. These reports include a tiger on the loose and a beast digesting its dinner in a back garden. One 999 call that was recorded from a member of the public from Axminster, Devon said, The beast of Bodmin Moor is at the top of my garden lying down digesting its dinner. I called you 30 minutes ago regarding this. If something does roam the moors, and there is plenty of evidence that this is indeed the case, there are a number of theories as to what it is. The most popular is that it's some kind of big cat that has escaped either from a zoo or an illegal collection of exotic pets. Some believe that given the vastness of Bodmin Moor, it could be a species of wild cat that had been mistakenly believed has become an extinct in Britain long, long ago. The final theory is that whatever it is, is something paranormal. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at at HowHauntedPod or over on Instagram at HowHauntedPod where you will see photos galore relating to the Jamaica Inn. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com or you can email me directly at rob at how-haunted.com. Feedback, location, suggestions and your own experiences are all more than welcome. Feel free to ask me any questions you like and I'll answer them all on a dedicated Q&A episode. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to episodes, you can join the Patreon for less than the price of a pint. You'll also get exclusive episodes where you'll join me on an actual paranormal investigation, and you'll hear the audio as it happened. The six episodes of this nature are waiting for you right now. If you aren't a fan of Patreon, or perhaps would prefer to make a one-off donation at the podcast, why not donate £2 to buy me a coffee? All the information on how you can support How Haunted is in the podcast description and over on the website. If you've enjoyed this episode, if enjoy is the right word, then please subscribe and review the podcast on your podcast provider of choice. It really does help other people to find How Haunted. Next time out, we'll continue to look at the Jamaica Inn, and I'll talk with Karen Besant, who leads the in-house team at the Spooky Inn, 
and I'll ask her if the near 300 year old building really is as active as we would be led to believe. Let's find out what she has to tell us together next week when we return to the Jamaica Inn. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe and join me next time when we will once again ask the question, how haunted? Thank you.